Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. Sometimes I feel like a We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message.
gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I know you are aware of Jesus's Last Supper. It's the time after the Passover meal that Jesus gathered with disciples and gave them bread, saying, this is my body broken for you. And then he gave them the cup saying, this is my blood poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, for the opportunity for new life. And as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, do this in remembrance of me. The Last Supper is the act of Jesus on which we base our ritual of communion. And as United Methodists, we believe that our reenactment of the Last Supper as we partake of communion is a means of grace, making God present to us in a very special and a very real way. So you're familiar with the Last Supper. But have you heard of the first dinner? Today's scripture takes us back to a moment during the last days of Jesus's earthly life. Matthew, Mark, and John all have a description of this first dinner, and each gives us slightly different details. Though we typically refer to this dinner as taking place during Holy Week, John's Gospel suggests that these events may actually have stretched over a period that was more like 10 days. But in any case, it was very close to the time of Jesus's crucifixion. And in this story, in this story of the first dinner, Jesus has come to the Jerusalem area for the Passover, and the scripture tells us he's in the village of Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. John's gospel has a slightly different detail here and names the location of the home as um, Mary and Martha's house. But in any case, they're in the village of Bethany. And a dinner is being offered with Jesus as the honored guest. The disciples are gathered. They're having a party. And then in walks this woman. Nobody knows her. She's uninvited. Can you picture this? Can you picture this scene? It's a dinner honoring the one this group has come to understand to be the Messiah. And there's relationship among these persons that has been formed in the trenches of walking with Jesus, of carrying his message, of sometimes enduring the, the criticisms and the, and the questions of the crowds. And we can imagine this scene. We can imagine that it feels cozy and intimate, like dinner parties among close friends do. We can imagine that those who are present feel special. Jesus, we know, is carrying the stress and concern of what is to come later in that week, or what he imagines may be coming. But the disciples seem to continue to deny the, the true gravity of the moment, and 
the sense is that they're, they're kind of caught up in, in being the ones, the entourage of Jesus. So when the woman walks in and opens this jar of very costly and fragrant oil, we can just feel the mood in the room start to turn. She anoints Jesus with this ointment called nard. And then the scripture tells us that the disciples become angry. Wait a minute, they say. This oil was worth 300 denarii. This money could have been used to give to the poor. 300 denarii was a lot. It was worth about a year's wages. So that was a lot of money. But Jesus responds, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Well, this is an interesting response from Jesus. When I first came to this scripture in preparation for a sermon, when I was 27, pastoring my first church in Lawrence, Kansas, I, I was perplexed by this. And the, the Ecumenical Association of Pastors in Lawrence had a, had a tradition of offering a joint midday service every day during Holy Week at one of the big downtown churches. And it was about a month before Lent that year, my first year, that I learned that part of this tradition was that any pastor new to town was assigned to preach at one of these weekday services. Now, Holy Week is a very busy time, so to, to add another sermon into that uh, time frame, into that week, is, is, is really um, asking a lot. So this was a, a very particular form of clergy hazing. The scripture for the day that I was assigned that Monday in Holy Week was this scripture. Jesus' response of, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me, just didn't sit right with me. It just didn't sound like Jesus. And I'd heard that phrase of, you will always have the poor, thrown around as a biblically-based reason not to provide services and housing for the unhoused, or not to do feeding ministries, or the justification of why we didn't need to have programs that offered training and, and education to pull people out of poverty. So I, I just knew that there, there had to be more to what Jesus was saying. That, that, that wasn't the Jesus who I had come to know and love. And so I went back to the original Greek. My Greek was fresher in those days. And what I discovered was within the original language of the New Testament, Jesus' statement is better rendered, as long as there is greed, you will always have poverty. This is much more consistent with the moral code within Judaism at that time and much more consistent with the Jesus that I knew and know. In first century Palestine, there was a deep concern for the poor among Jews. And the prevailing belief was that there was no such thing as an honest, rich person. What was true then is also true now. Sharing and generosity 
are necessary for the well-being of all. These new details, as we hear them and as I started to see them and understand them, then begin to expose a different scene and a deeper understanding of Jesus's intent. And when you look at this along with the line in scripture that tells us that it was Judas who was the most outraged, not because he wanted the money for the poor, but because he planned to steal it, a very different picture emerges. Jesus is saying, your greed and your lack of willingness to share resources is something that you need to deal with now and in the months and years to come. This is an important message for us, that poverty is a function of greed and inequity, and that there is enough if we share. But there is something more here even when you hear Judas and the disciples saying, the money should have been donated to the poor, what do you hear? And when you hear voices today misquote this passage, shrugging their shoulders and saying, as the scripture says, the poor will always be with us, while at the same time spending resources in wasteful and self-serving ways, what do you hear? underneath that shrug and those words. I submit to you this morning that it is cynicism we hear, and cynicism is a sin. Now, if you know me, you know I don't use the word sin lightly. I prefer usually to describe a state of brokenness or a separation between ourselves and God when the concept of sin comes up. But I use this word here intentionally, and I'm not referring to the ancient cynicism of Greek philosophy. Cynicism, as I'm referring to it here, is modern cynicism, or some might say it's actually postmodern, stemming from the mid 20th century. This kind of cynicism is based in the belief that people are motivated purely out of self-interest. It is devoid of hope, and it is antithetical to faith. Now, I want to draw a distinction here. Cynicism is not skepticism. Skepticism can sometimes be useful in the sense that it can spur us to ask necessary questions, to hone in on truth and reality, though I do think a more positive way of, of thinking about those questions and asking those questions is, is to frame it in a, a culture of curiosity. But cynicism, on, on the other hand, communicates this, this derision about the gift of life, and it exhibits a supercilious attitude in which not only do others not know and understand the world as well as we do, they never will. In progressive circles, sometimes there is a belief that cynicism and sophistication are the same thing. But cynicism has nothing to do with wisdom and maturity. It cuts us off 
from the undeserved gifts and surprises of life, such as what we exhibited, uh, saw exhibited when a woman showed up out of nowhere, anointing Jesus with tremendous devotion and extravagant generosity. Can you imagine the scene if Judas and the disciples had chosen to view what happened with the lens of wonder and hope and faith rather than cynicism? Now, I don't mean to suggest in any way that I am above cynicism. In thinking back to that time when I was 27, a new pastor, excited about finding something new that the text might have to reveal if I looked hard enough, I see a different person. I see a person full of hope and joy. I see a person who was young, who had not weathered the disappointments or sadnesses that are part of life for all of us. Take a minute now to think about your own life. Are there ways you have become more cynical over time? Cynicism doesn't come from nowhere. As we experience life, we all must take care not to let it creep in. It steals our joy. It keeps us from experiencing the living Christ right in our midst. Pushing back against cynicism, all of the cynicism that surrounds us takes risk. We risk being seen as naive or being called Pollyannas or, or being seen as uninformed. But this is the risk the woman took. She risked the rejection of a group whose party she enters uninvited. She risked being belittled or questioned. In fact, she was belittled and questioned. But in rejecting cynicism, she preserved her humanity. And in so doing, she preserved that part of herself that was like Jesus. I think this is what Jesus is trying to teach us here. And as we've gone through Lent this year, with a deep focus on Jesus's passion, I've seen something I've never seen before in the scriptures. In every moment of this holiest of weeks, we are presented with scenes that emphasize the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus. He's not just preparing us for his death, he's preparing us for his resurrection. He's preparing us to see that he can die the most painful of deaths just like any human. But he's also preparing us to see that he can rise above death, being present with us in new ways and in true divinity. The word Christ or Christos in Greek means anointed one. In a word, it ties together the person of Jesus the human with his divine vocation as the Messiah. In the Bible, an anointing that was tied to divinity would use the word Christos and typically be an anointing of the head. 
But there were other kinds of anointing in Jesus's time. Different words were used to signify what kind of anointing was happening and what it meant. But in our English, all of this is translated into just one word, anointing. And so these differences get lost. In our scripture for today, the word for anointing is not Christos, but rather Myrizo, which is sig signified, which signified an anointing of the physical body for burial. This word and this act was what was done at the time for any body, not just a divine being as Jesus was. What we are supposed to be focusing on here is not Jesus the Christ, but Jesus the human, Jesus the flesh and blood body that in its earthly state has value beyond our imaginings, value far greater than one year's wages. This is what the symbol of the 300 denarii means, that this body, this human being is a gift of immeasurable price, immeasurable value. This is the gift of our God who came to us as fully divine and fully human. We proclaim this mystery of faith every time we participate in the sacrament of communion. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We also tell the story of the Last Supper when Jesus said, eat of this bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of me. And as we do so, we know that God in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes present to us in special and mystical ways, fully present with us as one of us and as God, as present to us at that table, our table, as he was with those who gathered around the table at this first dinner. Jesus has also instructed us to tell the story of the first dinner and the story of this woman. He says, truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. May we today tell her story, and may we take the risk of rejecting cynicism for the sake of our joy, our humanity, and our lives. This is the gift of the fully divine Jesus who showed us how to live out of the fullness of our humanity. Friends, live in hope and live in faith. Live in joy.
podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. When the storms of the life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me, like a ship upon the sea. Thank you.